Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hello listeners, Fass here. Welcome to the show. It's the Queen's Platinum Jubilee this week. My fellow Brits of course will already know that, but for those of you listening from elsewhere, we are enjoying a four-day weekend to mark Elizabeth II's 70 years on the throne. She's the first British monarch ever to reach this milestone. As a consequence, there will only be one podcast this week, as I too will be on holiday. But what a great podcast it is. In this episode, we're sharing Tina Brown's recent appearance on the How To Academy stage, where she shared her insights into the monarchy since Diana's death and asked where the House of Windsor goes from here. Tina is one of the most distinguished journalists of her generation, a former editor of The New Yorker, Tatler and Vanity Fair. Her new book is The Palace Papers, Inside the House of Windsor, Truth and Turmoil. And it's out now. Tina was joined in conversation by journalist, broadcaster and author Pandora Sykes. Enjoy. So this is your third book and it picks up more or less where the Diana Chronicles left off and it is completely fascinating as anyone who's already gobbled it down since it came out will know uh, with more than 120 people interviewed. And I wondered, with so much written about the royal family, thousands of pieces being written as we are talking here tonight, how do you cut through the noise to locate what you wanted to say? Well, I tried to kind of create this sort of arc of this family, you know, for 25 years and see it all as choosing moments which I thought kind of illuminated their journey through the post-Diana kind of twilight, this, 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 the scorched earth, really, of the Diana years, which left so much kind of... them all shaking and quaking, essentially. So that was the interesting part to me, is how do they get their mojo back? So I was trying to sort of illuminate that, and so then I would try to find stories, essentially, that I wanted to tell in that. And then there were just stories that I just loved telling and chose to tell, like the trial of Paul Burrell, the butler... Because I thought it was extremely important if we're going to do upstairs all the time to also have like the downstairs culture of Buckingham Palace. And the trial of Paul Burrell was just a fabulous way to kind of open that Pandora's box and look inside and see all of these, you know, chippy sort of discontented servants and their kind of, you know, pilfering things and, and, and sort of pretending to be so kind of devoted but actually sort of fulminating about how they could make more money and... It was just a really fun way to kind of lift the, you know, lift the lid a bit 
So sometimes I just chose stories I wanted to tell. I was amazed by how many of officially registered gifts had gone missing from various royal households or when you'd be installed in a flat of a former press secretary, for example. And you'd say, oh, where did that come from? And they'd say, oh, nowhere. You know, you kept seeing things that had popped up. Well, I know, but it's all because of the kind of... The palace culture was always so kind of parsimonious that nobody was paid enough. Everyone was supposed to be working there because it was such an honour. And that kind of created this sort of freebie culture where every time, you know, there were any swag bags that came in from various, uh, you know, grand events, they would, they would be sort of tossed at the, at the staff and then there would be this feeding frenzy for um, various Tiffany, you know, bits and pieces, you know, which was the way it goes. I'm interested that you said there that you, when you started the book, it was because it was at the reputation of the royal family was at, you know, a real low. And obviously we're speaking at a time where it's also not in a great place. And you write that 2011 to 2019 was the golden era. And I wondered what you would call the era that we're in right now, or is it too soon to do that? Oh, my God. I don't know, the days of the teetering tiaras. I don't know. I mean, it's it's... Well, that was what was also so interesting. I mean, they, they, you know, the, the, the House of Windsor gets rocked by this, this comet that, that streaks through that was Diana and leaves everybody kind of burnt and kind of figuring out, like, what on earth they can do to kind of recover from it. And they do recover from it. You know, they, they work at it, particularly really thanks to the Queen, who, who kind of held this whole show together. And they all sort of determinately, I mean, her mantra at that time, um, which I, I, I heard, you know, from people there, was like, never again. Never again was the mantra. Never again are we going to have what happened with Diana, which is a member of the family who becomes bigger than the institution, who develops a separate power base, essentially, from celebrity and uh, acclaim and people power. The whole need was to get back to it being genuinely an ensemble cast who supported the principle of the whole enterprise, which is the sovereign, clearly. And there was a real desire to go back to being dull, quite honestly. I mean, they... You know, dullness became really hard-earned. You know, they, they wanted to be back to being dull. Uh, that's what they were before Diana came along, and that's what they wanted to return to. And they did a pretty good job of that, I have to say, um, for quite a long time. And there was a very good moment, a sort of wonderful peak moment, really, when between 2011 and 2017, which was really that golden moment, which was, you know, the, the Queen's incredibly successful tour of Ireland, which was a sort of really her greatest political success, if you couldn't, you know, she's not meant to be political, but Ireland was a real political success in terms of the reconciliation to it. No, no, no royal had been to Ireland since George V, so it was extraordinarily important and it was a huge triumph for the Queen. And then you had uh, William and Kate getting married. I mean, a massive national joy, an adored wedding. I mean, people just, it was a moment of, of huge, you know, optimism um, you had the London Olympics, so it also kind of dovetailed. And that's what's partly interesting in the book, was writing, keeping the, the backdrop of England always kind of there and meshed with the story, because these stories don't happen in a vacuum. They're happening against in you know, an evolving national situation. And, and that period, I call it peak London, because that period before the Olympics, it was sort of multicultural, it was um, optimistic. People, you know, that it was after the, the financial crash where people had felt that they escaped, you know, disaster, and it was a very, very sort of positive moment. Actually, um, Boris and his bikes, you know, it was all very positive. And then, of course, you had the Olympics, which was the great sort of crowning moment of that period. And the Queen does her wonderful stunt 
with Daniel Craig, you know, that, and, for, and for the first time becomes a sort of pop culture heroine, actually. It was a great pivot moment for the Queen. She went from being, you know, the august figure to being kind of adored by younger people for being kind of hilarious, which she was in, in that moment. So that was her, the great period. And then it all looked like it was going so brilliantly. Harry was in the army. He'd done two wonderful tours of Afghanistan, and, you know, he was beloved. And then, well, we know what happened then. <laughs> Oh, my God. Like the history, wheels came off. It all, the wheels came off. The wheels came off again. And what's amusing, you know, frankly, uh, as well as fascinating, is to see that cycle of repetition. Amusing and, and also terrifying as yeah, well. Terrifying. Because there's now... The, it's with the knowledge of what's happened previously. Right. Well, it's terrifying and it's much more threatening now because the Queen, of course, is much in less, less, you know, is in frail health. In the past, she could always be relied to pull the show together. She could always do it, you know, because she's so good at it. And, she, you know, you could always rely that, you know, on the keep calm, carry on, was going to make, everything was going to be okay. We can't say that this time. And they had a very fine moment, the royal family, I think, in the pandemic, a really fine moment. I mean, they, they, they were just somehow at their best in that period. But then, you know, with Andrew, uh, um, <laughs> Uh, and the Sussexes, um, you know, bolting for the exit and continuing to throw sort of hand grenades. That's the interesting and, and scary part. You know, and we're looking at something more, more perilous, essentially, now. So that was also, of course, fascinating to write about. And, of course, now she doesn't have Philip by her side. So and now she again. doesn't have Philip. And, you know, I, I take a, a, quite a lot of space in the book to write about the marriage of Elizabeth and Philip because I think... It was so critical to the, to the success mm. of the Queen's reign. And I came to the conclusion that really marital love is, is one of the most, perhaps the most important factor in a successful monarchy, essentially. Because if you look back, you know, the, 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 George VI would have, he would not nearly have been the monarch that he was, you know, in, the, in World War II if he hadn't had the solicitous strategic sort of supportive wife that he had in uh, Elizabeth, you know, who became the Queen Mother. And the Queen really needed Philip at her side uh, because Philip was iconoclastic and he was a truth teller. And he was the only person who could really tell her, you know, what the truth. I mean, you know, everybody else is bowing and scraping is the truth. However much they impersonate being, you know, relaxed around her. Only Philip really knew her and could tell her what he thought without fear of anything. So he was critical to her. Um, I think she would have been a much more timid monarch, uh, sort of run by her advisors, without Philip there to kind of loosen and relax and, and sort of help her to embrace modernity. And of course, we saw what happened to Charles when he had a very unhappy marriage, and now he's so utterly transformed by his marriage to Camilla. You know, he's he's now an unapologetically happy man, thanks to. Camilla's, you know, being allowed to be, in a sense, with the woman he's always loved. And you see this, and of course, you know, with, with William and, and, and Catherine, you know, that I think it, William could have easily kind of gone, gone off a, a ledge, you know. I mean, he, he had just as much pain and instability in his childhood as, as Harry did. But uh, he found Catherine early, and she's been his rock, you know, and you feel how incredibly important that is. So I think, I think the marital bond is, is, is critical, and something perhaps has been underestimated in the past. So I want to get to the Sussex and what's going on 
now, but I want to take us back to 1997 when Diana had died because I was really interested that you said that Diana's death is the only time the Queen got it wrong or has ever got it wrong. Could you expand a little bit on that? Yes, well, the Queen, you know, that, that was the time really in a sense where the private and the public collided for the Queen in a way that really was unmanageable. Uh, when Diana died, of course, she was in Balmoral, as we know, and her natural instinct was to stay with her grandchildren and to address, you know, and, and, and console and, and be part of a, of a horrific family tragedy, essentially. But the call of being the monarch, you know, was, was, was rising, and, and the people of England wanted her in London. They wanted to see her emote. Mm. And, I mean, the Queen, uh, you know, the, the, the monarch, in a sense, until that moment, it, it was enough just to be, essentially. I mean, your role was to, to sort of not emote, essentially, and to rise above the emoting. And suddenly she was required to emote. And that's just not something the Queen has ever been prepared to do in public. And she was raised not to do that. And she has, her self-discipline has, has all directed at not doing that. And so she, she's, uh, one of the things that's so amazing and fascinating about her is that she is the most authentic person you could possibly meet. She is not ever going to uh, perform a stunt. You know, she's not, she's not remotely political in that sense. She's not going to do things for PR unless they feel right. And it didn't really feel right to her. That she, she, what felt right was to be at Balmoral, you know, with, with her family. But in the end, she always does what it takes to protect the monarchy too. Uh, and... Uh, it was the will of the people, and, and she knows that ultimately, you know, she reigns at the will of the people, essentially. So she came down and she did it, and she she made, uh, you know, the television address that uh, th that was sort of wanted of her. I, I'm told that Prince Philip considered it a great humiliation. I don't, I mean, there's been a lot of, oh, the Queen spoke as a grandmother, but that line about being a grandmother actually was, uh, you know, it was... It was a script that was that she she was prepared for her, and I, I I think that she I think for her that was one of the hardest things that she felt she had to do, and it did placate the mood, and everything went back to being manageable again. But it was a very uh, it was her most perilous, hairy if you like moment in her reign, probably the only one, and I think it stayed with her. I know it stayed with her as, as something she never wanted to see happen ever again. Well, it's one of those clashes that's happened more and more, hasn't it, in the last 25 years, along with the whole sort of never complain, never explain adage no longer really being fit for purpose, of you had a very uh, sort of removed royal family, but then when Diana died, it was, she was also a very emotive person, but it was the kind of public emoting that Britain had never seen. And... 2.5. I mean, I can still remember where I was when I saw on television that she died, and I was 10. And I can remember what, how all my family responded. I mean, I don't think anyone has had another living moment like that. And so you've got this hugely emotional spectacle. I'm watching the news coverage of it, of people crying in the streets. And then, as you say, she'd been raised to do the exact opposite. And it feels like that set in motion something that's going to keep on happening, which is that it no longer works. Society is no longer, perhaps, as removed. It's, it, it's, we're more emotional as a well, we're, culture. We're definitely more emotional, but it, it, it's, an, it's an interesting paradox because, um, you know, we still don't know what the Queen thinks about anything. I mean, 70 years she's been here on the throne, and we have no idea what her opinions are. And she has this impassive face that she very often wears, 
Um, one of her people said to me that that impassive face really is something that she's perfected to because anyone can project anything they want on it. The Queen is loving this concert. Look at her expression. You know, uh, the Queen really can't stand this concert. What is she thinking? Um, and I'm told that, you know, when she kind of comes off stage, she might actually be quite sort of vigorous in what she actually does think, as in, what a bloody awful concert that was, you know. But the fact is that she has mastered the art of being completely inscrutable. But, you know, we already know way too, way too much, essentially, about Charles and, and even William, who has been quite vocal and given interviews and, you know, has been much more... Um, connected essentially to uh, the people than of course the Queen ever was you know we say we don't know what the Queen thinks about anything so part of the royal mystique of course was not knowing right I mean uh, Charles doesn't really have that kind of mystique at all because we know we know everything that Charles thinks about everything really you know he's been very opinionated over the last 45 years and he said what he thinks and we know what he thinks and that doesn't have the same kind of mystique of course as, as saying nothing does anyone have mystique now well, saying nothing is one very good way to have mystique. But in an era when um, people never stop talking and uh, oversharing, you know, not saying things is actually the only way, is the way to have mystique. I mean, I think that Kate actually has some yeah, mystique because, because Kate doesn't actually, we don't really know what Kate thinks about anything either. You know, she's definitely decided to go that route. And I think, personally, think it's probably the right way to go because it gets you into less difficult, you know, sticky situations than, than, than oversharing. She just smiles her way through. But it's she equally, it's a, it's a smile that you can't tell again if it's wonderful or terrible. Absolutely, there's a big Mona Lisa quality to that. It's seriously impressive. <laughs> Diana was mercilessly hounded by the paparazzi and you write that the ultimate prize was to make her cry and you interview some particularly unpleasant paparazzi who wrote a book about how they would taunt her, really, when she was with her children. There were jokes that she was suffering from mad cow disease. And Martin Bashir, I mean, I thought we'd read everything hideous about that interview, but apparently not. Martin Bashir told her that William and Harry's nanny, Tiggy Leg Burke, was having an affair with Charles and had aborted their child. And yet, you write, how much worse would it be today? How could it be worse today? Do you think just with the addition of social media? Well, I think, what I do think... Uh would would be worse today probably is the conspiracy theories would get a lot more traction you know i mean there were a lot of conspiracy theories when diana died that you know she'd been murdered there was all that crazy stuff with you know al-fayed uh saying that she was murdered today well that could might have got real traction on social Mm. media Mm. it might really have got traction so i think in that sense uh, it's possible. But the barbarity, in a sense, of the press in the 90s was, I think, outstanding, actually. It really was. Uh, I mean, you know, when I look back on, on some of the stuff that we were writing and doing, it is pretty extraordinary that it could have happened. And, of course, today, the, the, the sort of the press, uh, the, the kind of, um, you know, paparazzis getting into your face in the way that they did then, that actually doesn't, doesn't happen nearly as much now. Well, there are sort of laws around it now, aren't there? There are many more laws. I mean, some of they, they do... Every so often you'll see a movie star in, in L.A., you know, sue because they've got way too close in the car and so on, but not like the way they... They can't shoot up skirts, which exactly, was can't not shoot illegal. Up skirts, but also they just used to literally get up to Diana and they would just torment her and they would taunt her and they wanted to see her cry. It was a better picture. Uh, extraordinarily barbaric. And I feel like we're only really reckoning 
with that quite recently, that it was just sort of accepted that, oh, if that's your job, that's your role, then you have to get used to a hundred men stalking you. Often and yeah, but there was also, of course, though, then the subsequent uh, uh, horror, which was, I mean, I do a whole chapter in this on the book, which is called Snoopers, because I got... And it really shocked me. It was one of the things that really shocked me in the book, actually, was to really go deep into what happened in the uh, phone hacking of the royals, because it was unbelievable. And, in fact, we've just seen that Sienna Miller's case uh, has recently come up, where she was, uh, you know, she, it was proved that the, the records were stolen and, and, and she was revealed that she was pregnant when she was 23, I mean, it's monstrous. It's just, it, you know, it's, it's unthinkable. But that period was, was completely without any moral um, kind of, you know, inhibition. Uh, and I did get to feel actually very sympathetic towards Harry, particularly, because his whole adolescence was absolutely ruined by the press. I mean, they, they, they stalked and blagged and, and eavesdropped and, and, and hacked and... I mean, the poor kid, I mean, he was just trying to be, you know, a young guy, you know, and every time he went out and had a drink, he was always, like, you know, photographed stumbling out of nightclubs, and it was absolutely horrible the way they tormented him, and the way they tormented his girlfriends was just a scandal, you know, his two, uh, Chelsea Davy and then uh, Cressida Bonus. I mean, these girls, were, their lives were made of misery, so you do understand, or I, I feel I understand why he was so bitter with the press, you know, it, he first, the, the first the press had, you know, had hounded his mother and now they were hounding his girlfriends and they never gave him a minute to sort of be, uh, you know, a fallible young man. And it, it really has, uh, you know, it's, it's left a very, very big festering wound in him as well, we've seen recently. pulled out of the army as well because obviously yep, they found yep, where yep, he, he was. The army for Harry was a wonderful solace. You know, he was able to hide in the army. And, I mean, he felt safer, you know, on the front lines than he did, you know, in a nightclub in London with a target on his back, a different kind of target on his back. So uh, it, it has left him very, very scarred. And he's less, much less able to handle it than William, I think, because William always had his destiny to sort of... And, and, and his marriage and all of this that kind of rooted him in a way that, for Harry, uh, it's been much harder. So you mentioned in the 90s that obviously the paparazzi was just horrendous. It's also because there was so much money in it at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, pre the internet, photo sets could go for millions. And of course, toe-sucking gate with Fergie. I just sort of thought about it. You know, it was, it's, it's just something a bit toe-curling and revolting. But I didn't realise until I read your book that Prince Philip left. Ever since that happened, he will never be in a room with her. He leaves a room if she entered... And she recalled recently, you write, that one newspaper ran a survey about would you rather sleep with Fergie or a goat? And 82% of people chose a goat. But there were so many ways in which um, she was treated just appallingly for something that's, you know... Well, also, let us not forget also that, that. you know, we we shouldn't forget that the toe-sucking incident, she was already separated from Andrew. Yeah. And it was a private holiday, you know, she was on. She was completely had her privacy utterly invaded by these cameras. But nobody felt sorry for her or wrote, you know, what a terrible thing it was for her to be so invaded and so and so mocked and so humiliated. It was utterly misogynistic, actually, what the way she was treated. In fact, uh, and I mean, I have a I have a lot of sympathy for Fergie. Actually, I mean, you know, she is she's been a huge 
spendthrift, which is obviously her, her biggest weakness, but she is also kind of big-hearted and she's loyal. And the Queen is very, very fond of Fergie, actually, and she used to have her to stay whenever Philip wasn't there because uh, she knew that Philip couldn't stand her, but she was always had a very soft spot for Fergie because she has a sense of humour. She loves sort of country life, and she's just warm-hearted, and, and the Queen liked her. If she was very fond of Fergie, how did, she, how did Fergie get such a poor divorce settlement, which is about the 28th of what Diana's was? So she had £850,000, including the value of her house to live in. So her settlement was... Uh, it was just the most abysmal. And Diana got £17 million. Yeah. Charles yeah. had to borrow money from the Queen. I know. Charles is still smarting about that. <laughs> he exactly. complains that he was taken, you know, taken to the cleaners. I must say that it was... A brilliantly savvy move on Diana's part. Diana saw what had happened to Fergie, how she'd been completely sort of screwed, honestly, in her divorce. And she thought, that's not happening to me. And the way she did beat it was to hire Anthony Julius, who was a very, very savvy divorce lawyer, who wasn't part of the sort of cosy establishment uh, sort of, you know, British bar at all. He was an outsider he didn't care. He didn't want to go to Buckingham Palace or have a knighthood or anything. He, he, so he was a wonderful hire. And, uh, I mean, he just got what she deserved, actually. I mean, she, he, he got, I think it was £16 million and, you know, living in Kensington Palace uh, in perpetuity, which was a really pretty good deal uh, at the time. But, but Fergie, you know, yeah, it was just a terrible deal. Well, that wouldn't... The thing about the royals is that they just are, when it comes to money, they are extremely cheap. They're just cheap. And um, they have always been that way. I think it's this kind of, the sense, the deep sense that people are sort of lucky to work for them or lucky to be involved with them. And I suppose as well, it's hard for them to imagine having money worries. You know, they just, they, it's a lack of imagination, essentially. I mean, Billy Talon, who was the uh, Queen Mother's devoted uh, steward, I mean, he served her for something like 60 years, and he was dying to retire, but, the, but she was 102, you know, she, she just <laughs> went on forever. And, I mean, nobody said to Billy Talon, I mean, like, you know, he, she needed him, so he couldn't retire. And he went on and on and on, but then when she died, I don't think she sort of left him like £10,000 or something. In, in her will, you know, I mean, no, no grace and favour house for Billy Talon. So there's a blind, blind spot there that I think has actually caused them a lot of trouble, mm. actually, because it would have been much smarter to give Fergie uh, a big cheque so that she would then not be out there, grub, you know, grubbing around yes. for deals. I mean, uh, ultimately... She has no sort of... Yeah, that's so like you, on the one bit. hand, you know, they, they, they don't have enough money to live the way they want, but on the other hand, if they try to make money, the only way they can make money, essentially, is by leveraging, mm. you know, their royal position, which ultimately, of course, leads them completely awry. Yeah, and often ends in sort of fake shake mm-hmm. disaster. I, just on the money thing, it was and you have so many great anecdotes about it, there's such a contrast between the kind of more parsimonious members of the royal family and the real spendthrift. So the Queen Mother loved to live big, loved spending money, constantly giving the Queen heart attacks about what she was buying or trying to pay for. And then you also write about Prince Charles. I still can't believe it's an actual thing that he takes his furniture and his pictures <laughs> and his own martini glass and his butler to pour the martini when he goes to stay for a weekend. <laughs> Is it just like a horse box filled with his... <laughs> well, he used to have, you know, his <clears throat> devoted aide, Michael Fawcett, who's now, of course, fallen from grace, but he would go ahead as a kind of advanced man. It's a bit like a kind of Tudor baggage train or something. 
you know, the, the, the Prince of Wales would have, he, he liked to have what he liked to have around him. And so if you asked him to stay, people got very kind of put out when they suddenly found that their pictures were being removed from the wall and his, you know, favourite Scottish landscapes <laughs> were, were put up. But he's, he's a great Eastley, Charles. You know, he's, he's, look, he's, he's coddled. You know, he likes to live like that and no one's going to say no. Prince Philip, on the other hand, would send a pair of 51-year-old, a 51, 51 years, uh, a 51-year-old pair of trousers to be mended at the tailors. You know, he had the same pair detail. of trousers. I, know, I just love that too. <laughs> I just, lo- I love Prince Philip. He's one of the great characters in the book. I mean, when he, um, he used to, you know, he always loved technology, Philip. And at the end of his life, he became obsessed with his Kindle. Uh, and then he got very, very cross that. You know, that they, with all the marketing that was coming over his Kindle, then he got so annoyed he just threw it in the bath. <laughs> Bloody thing doesn't work, you know, can't stand it. But he's such a character, just like us. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, you also as well what I was so fascinated about I mean what you really learn from reading this book is what many of us already suspect to be true which is that it's a fairly miserable existence for many people living and working in the royal family and you describe at one point that many of them are like the walking wounded Um, and I was astonished to read that for five years when Andrew was in Portsmouth Fergie was only allowed to see him for 40 days a year because Andrew worried she would be a distraction. And you think, I mean, isn't she allowed to be a distraction to I her know. husband? I mean, it's really, that's really sad. I mean, that it's was really just, that was, a, that was a very, very tough. I mean, there's no doubt that these young girls, you know, Fergie and Diana had such a tough time living in that. I mean, Fergie actually quite interestingly describes in, in some kind of memoir she wrote that sort of, you know, years and years ago about the kind of, the dingy curtains and the kind of living in this kind of mangy suite in, you know, in, in, in Buckingham Palace, waiting, just waiting around, you know, for Andrew to come. And they're not really, you know, she couldn't really do anything except sort of just, you know, wait and, and do occasional um, engagements. It was a very sad and sorry life that she had to leave, actually. And she, she certainly wasn't... Uh, equipped to, to live that way. I mean, who would be? It's, it's for a modern young woman. It's an extremely difficult way to live. I think that there has been... A lot has moved on since then. You know, I think that uh, Kate Middleton kind of lives, like, you know, very happily, like a sort of, uh, you know, a, a, a woman of means in the country. She's, she's, they have a very much more modern setup than, say, Andrew and Fergie did. But, um, but even so, I mean, Kate's done quite a lot of waiting around, you know, for, for, for William. Well, the tabloid gave, tabloids gave her that awful moniker of Waity Katie. Waity Katie, yes, yes, indeed. But it was kind of brilliant of William, though, to, to wait as long as they did to marry because he really did make sure she understood what she was getting into. Mm. Um, it, it amused me very much that the first uh, engagement that the Queen took Meghan on you know, which was a big deal to have Meghan accompany the Queen. And she, she took her to the opening um, of, 
a bridge on Mersey, in Merseyside. Loves bridges, he revealed. And bridges it was almost tunnels. as if she was saying, I just want you to see how it's done, Megan, right? I mean, this is, about, this is what you do. You know, you go, you go to Teesside and you open a bridge and you love it. You just love it. And the Queen does love it. You know, she's like her, her, her grandmother, Queen Mary, said, you know, we, uh, you know, you, you know, you're a member of the royal family. She said, you know, you, we, um, we're never tired and we all love hospitals. And that's sort of what the Queen was sort of really saying to Meghan. She said, you know, the Queen loves infrastructure. One of her people said to me that she loves to, she loves opening bridges and tunnels. And, you know, she'll, she'll, she'll get, move, like, put her hand out and, and take from the, the, the rejected pile, you know, the invitation to open a tunnel or something. And that's what she wants to do. She loves infrastructure. So she's kind of perfectly matched with her assignments. But I don't know many people who would find opening bridges and tunnels that fascinating in today's world. You know, it's, it's, it's not many of us could really live like our 96-year-old great-grandparents either. Well, therein lies the issue, doesn't it? And you, I mean, you talking about the tunnels and you relay in great detail quite how many places they are deployed and the minutiae of what they are made to open. And a lot of it is incredibly dull. You know, you say on the Millennium Eve, when everyone else was having a great time, every single one of them was dispatched to open a different something. And some of them were just astoundingly dull. And, but it did make me think there's, there's that common accusation of the royal family should just get a job. And when I read your book, I was struck by the sense that they never stop working. Many of them do 200, 250. And, and there's no off-ramp. Right? I mean, most of it is if you have a job where you have lots of boring things to do, you think, well, that's all right, and I'll do this for three years, and then, you know, I'll move on, or I'll move up, or I'll, you know, I'll, I'll just take the money and run, or whatever. No, if you're a member of the royal family, there's no off-ramp. You just have an, you know, an endless vista of opening bridges in Teesside. I mean, you're going to be doing this forever. So that's pretty daunting, and... It is a bit like a kind of secular version of taking the veil. I mean, this is, a, this is a vocation that you have to be serious about, very serious about. I think that, that Camilla found it pretty difficult at first when well, she, she didn't moved from being it, you know, a mistress to being you know, a wife because being a wife meant much less fun for Camilla, you know, frankly. Um, you know, it was never her... She never liked having a diary full of things that she'd rather not do. That was not, you know, what her life had been at all. So the fact that she was willing to sort of bite it off, actually, is impressive. I mean, she's now 75, and the thing she, you know, her vista is actually working more and more and more. Yes, <laughs> it's not what most do, of us want to do on my 75. Do sort of, didn't she do 240 public appearances? Yeah, I mean, this was someone who always said she never wanted to do royal engagements. I mean, Camilla liked to sort of, you know, lie on the couch and smoke a cigarette and, and read a novel. You know, she, she wasn't a woman who was eager to dress up in, you know, put on those spanks and get out and, you know, um, smile all the time. But she's doing it really well. Yeah, she's I mean, she's doing it really, really well. And she's going to be doing it now till she just, you know, she, she keels over, which is quite a commitment. Do you think that public appearances still have the same impact that, if not the royal family, then everyone around the business of the royal family has always believed them to have? I mean, that, that has always been their sort of one and only way of showing everything. Does it, is it still fit for purpose? Because obviously another of the big clashes was Meghan asking to develop her role, to shape her role beyond just the sort of mute snipping of a ribbon. And I wonder if that's going to be something that's... I don't think it's just her that would think this is 
this is an odd way for us to show... We're only showing face. Does it still have well, the same It's so impact? interesting that I was thinking about that the other day. I mean, is it just simply an anachronism to be doing this? I mean, I'm sure when the Queen comes but, and opens your bridge, it means something, but does it convey as much as well, we need I mean, things I, to convey now? I think now? it's a good question. I think it's a very interesting question. I suspect it probably is effective in the same way that it's effective for politicians to go out and shake hands and shake hands and open things. You know, that's mm. what politicians do. It's retail politics. It is retail politics. So as retail politics, I prob- there's probably nothing better, really, than, than still doing that, showing up, showing face, showing interest, and validating people. So I think you can move too far the other way, where you say, this is all going to be thematic and cause-driven now. You know, I'm only going to talk about the environment, or I'm only really going to talk about, uh, you know, my particular thematic passion. The Queen's always had a huge kind of, a, a, a hugely sort of plural portfolio, actually. But Charles has had quite thematic passions. He has, but there's been a huge amount of them. I mean, he's, he, he's done a le- many, many, many things. I mean, his foundation is actually very, very eclectic. Yeah, and the Prince. Uh, so I think it's, you, you sort of, you, you know, you edit it down too far at your peril a bit. Mm. Because then you are, you know, you're leaving a lot of people out. And I think that, that people love to be validated. You know, they love to have a visit from um, the member of the royal family who tells them that they've done a wonderful job, you know, and they, they, it, it's a time of pride and, and, uh, and sort of, you know, a, a sense of being seen, you know. So it, it's an interesting question. I think you can go too far in, the, in this idea of being thematic. One of the great sides in your book, I mean, there are just so many, is when Prince Andrew noted that the Queen Elizabeth II Conference Centre was a bit small, Boris Johnson retorted, if it's too small, it's your mum's fault, which (laughs) reads like something out of Mrs Brown's schoolboys. How did you discover morsels like that, which is so believable? Well, that was actually from a tweet that I noticed. I mean, somebody (laughs) tweeted this out, and um, I'm surprised it didn't get picked up anywhere. It was somebody remembering the anniversary of that thing. Uh, I can't remember who it was, and I just happened to catch it on social media, and I thought, well, this is going to be all over the Daily Mail, but nobody else saw it except for me. (laughs) (laughs) That's a very good spot. You know how, I mean, you mentioned earlier as well that you know how difficult it's been, particularly for Charles, to endure the revelations made by Paul Burrell, Mark Boland, Michael Fawcett, these former press secretaries and bodyguards and so on and so forth, who go from being scrupulously loyal to hell-bent on destroying reputations of the royal family. This is quite the switch-up, aside from the fact that most of them are underpaid and overworked. Why do so many of them leave so furious? And why on earth aren't they made to sign NDAs? That, to me, would be the obvious thing if I was seeing that this kept happening. I know, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, I mean, just to go back to the Paul Burrell trial, what was so incredible was that when, the, you know, when they decided, when the Queen basically declared uh, that she remembered something, which meant that the trial shouldn't go ahead, nobody then locked down Paul Burrell, so he, left, he went off and he sold his memoirs. So he told everything he would have told on the stand anyway and got paid a ton of money for it. And you think, I don't think that the, the Kennedy family or the Clintons <laughs> would have let Paul Burrell go off and, you know, and do that, essentially, just like sell his memoirs and tell all these secrets and embarrass the family. Well, did, did Michael Fawcett not do that? With, did he have a News of the World column or was that someone else? That was, Michael, that was Mark Bolland. Okay, I, I got mean, a bit they lost. Don't, they don't, they don't feel... It's part of the, uh, the culture, again, of thinking, oh, they'd never do that because they wouldn't because, you know, we're the royal family and they won't do it. 
But actually, people have kept doing that. They're much, they do have many more people signing NDAs now. It's, got a, it's become a much more modernised operation now amongst, uh, in the palace than it was. Do you think it came from, they're so lucky to be working for us, they will always think they're so lucky to be working for us, they will never feel anything yeah. other than luck? I do think that. Hasn't, that hasn't really worked. Yeah, NDAs are, have not been a palace way of life until recently. So interesting because, of course, they've been used overzealously in so many other cultural happenings obviously to their detriment with stuff like Weinstein. And then you've got the royal family who isn't using them perhaps nearly Well, enough. I mean, the first of those big betrayals was, you know, supposedly was um, Marianne Crawford, you know, the nanny for, um, for the young Elizabeth, who, uh, who was the first to kind of sell her memoirs. And, um, you know, the Queen Mother wrote to, I think, Lady Astor and said, you know, our, um, well, our, our beloved Crawford has gone off her head, you know, <laughs> um, which was a, the reaction, essentially, that how, how could she do this? Um, but people need money, and they do, you know, they can sell it. You really emphasise how so much of the conversations between... Obviously, the tricky, and again, one of the sort of intractable issues, is that the royal family is a family and a business. And a lot of the time, what should have been discussed as a family would get funnelled through press secretaries. And really personal things, birthday presents received and thanked through press secretaries... Surely that makes it really difficult for a seamless family dynamic, especially because the press secretaries would also have their own biases and, you know... Private secretaries, yeah. Private secretaries, sorry. And Chinese whispers. Um, I mean, is this the impossible truth of having a family which is always a business? Because there seem to be so many instances where things would have been a lot more simple if two family members had been in the room together at the same time. Well, that's true, but this is part of the fascinating dysfunction that makes it so interesting to write about (laughs) I think generationally the Queen and Philip tended to communicate through their private secretaries and that happened, you know, that they did that with Charles. And Charles also would always communicate through his private secretaries. The two brothers vowed that they weren't going to do that. They vowed that they were never going to have a situation where their private secretaries kind of came between them and that they were having this Chinese whispers of staff kind of feeling empowered by being the one who had the information. And actually, their relationship sort of began, you know, began to change when their offices split and the Sussexes had their own office and, and, and uh, William had his own office. Their kind of old pact of, I'm just going to pick up the phone and talk to you or just text you, became gradually sort of obscured by the offices beginning to be, be players in their relationship, which I think definitely added to the friction of that feud when it, when it came down. I want to go to that feud in a minute, but I'd like to briefly detour. You touched on the hacking scandal, which you write at length about in the book, actually, and that was one of, I found that one of the most fascinating passages, because as you say, it's the royal family is only ever sort of part of what's going on in the wider culture in Britain. And I wondered, how did you draw the line around where you would or wouldn't go? So some of the things, obviously, that you were writing about is Andrew's relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. And you have this astounding anecdote from when you were invited to a dinner party in 2010 with... Well, you tell it, because you'll tell it better. Well, I mean, when I was editor of the Daily Beast, uh, we were actually the first to expose the scandal of the deal that Epstein had made with the, the DA in Florida to um, essentially only be, uh, uh, you know, charged with, with having solicited a minor young woman. That's it. I mean, in fact, there were numerous young women, as we know, but he was only actually charged with one. And he was put under 
essentially, you know, an absolute sweetheart deal where he had a kind of house arrest and most of the time he came and went for a year and a half. It was nothing. He was a slap on the wrist. And at the Daily Beast, I had a, a writer who, who was actually a, a specialist sort of in, in, in uh, uh, sexual trafficking. And she was working on sexual trafficking and it took her to Jeffrey Epstein. She wasn't working on Epstein. She was working on sexual trafficking. That story... She was tipped off, in fact, by a trafficker who was in prison in, in Miami. Um, and he told her about uh, uh, Jeffrey Epstein. And that's how she kind of got on the trail of Epstein. And she wrote, came in with the story, which I thought was unbelievably uh, you know, horrific and terrible. And she wrote these six pieces about Jeffrey Epstein for the Daily Beast, which kind of started that, that trail on, on Epstein. And um, I came back to my office one day, you know, I was in, uh, out for lunch or I was in the art department I think it was and I came into my office and there was Jeffrey Epstein sitting in my office and I had absolutely no idea and I still don't how he got up past the um, reception desk and that I didn't have any call saying you know there's a Mr. Epstein here he's in his kind of canny cunning fashion I mean he must have bluffed his way in somehow um, and there he was I had a kind of glass you know it was, a, it was in a glass uh, you know one of those glass skyscrapers in, uh, in, um, in Manhattan and he, I had a glass office, you know, and he was, I came in and there he was. I, I remember never forget sort of standing by the door and there was Jeffrey Epstein sitting in a chair in my office. And I, I, I looked at him and he just said to me, just stop. And I said, you know, Jeffrey, because I had met him actually once before. I'd met him at the <coughs> Bill Clinton's conference. Uh, I said to him, you know, Jeffrey, you know, why don't you just have your lawyer uh, call our lawyer and if you have a problem with something I'm going to print. He said, stop. And then he just got up and he left. And he had these kind of snake eyes. And he was so sinister, actually. He was very sinister. And I waited in quaking and trepidation for this you know, blizzard of uh, legal uh, documents. But he, there was nothing, nothing. And I think, and, and he, I think, recognized and thought, he gambled, that there would not be uh, a great deal of attention paid to these stories in the Daily Beast because at that time <coughs> this was pre Me Too and there really wasn't that much interest <coughs> in Jeffrey Epstein. As a matter of fact, he was a sort of minor player in in the New York sort of financial world in terms of reputation, not in terms of people he knew, but people he you know. He wasn't a figure who was in the gossip columns every day. And I, and instead he did, went on this kind of real charm offensive where he he let let fly all the stuff about his philanthropic activities. He sort of buried it in 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 PR. But uh, subsequently to that, uh, about six months later, this kind of very well-known kind of social PR in New York who does a lot of the celebrity screenings called me and said, you know, Tina, we're having, you know, there's going to be a great dinner party tonight. We really want you to come. I said, well, it's late notice. It's only, it's tomorrow. She said, yeah, but she said, look, it's great. It's going to be a wonderful evening. I've got um, Jeffrey Epstein, is is, is at Jeffrey Epstein's house. And uh, he's giving a dinner for Prince Andrew's in town. Uh, and the other guests, it's going to be a fabulous evening. And, and the other guests are, you know, Woody Allen, uh, <laughs> Charlie Rose, who was later, you know, cancelled as well, and uh, a TV host called Katie Couric there. And she said, we think it would be fantastic for you to come. And I was just, <laughs> I was so completely outraged because I published these six pieces about Jeffrey Epstein. And it's like, you know, I said to her, I said, what is this, Peggy, the fucking predator's ball? I said, well, you know, what, I, 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 absolutely, you know I'm never going to go to this dinner. Anyway, so she was taken aback. She said, oh, you know, he's, he's, he's really, you know, he's very nice, really. Um, 
so anyway, I was so appalled by this. And then later, of course, this dinner party became this kind of famous, you know, night of shame where, you know, I don't know whether I bitterly regret that I didn't go. That's what I wondered. Do you because, wish you'd gone or you terrified? Yeah, well, no, I mean, because actually, normally I'll go anywhere for a story. You know, I'm just this kind of, you know, it's too interesting to say no. But I just was so aghast, you know, at, because I'd spent so much time on these stories and, and, and being so appalled by what Jeffrey Epstein was doing. The idea of going to his house and, and sitting there with this guy. So um, I didn't go, but... Uh, now I wish I had. I would have had another great chapter if I had gone. <laughs> and I could have been, you know, the one who saw Andrew waving goodbye at the door, you know. The missed copy. Missed um, copy. Well, the biggest blow to the royal family in the last few years has obviously been the revelations around Prince Andrew. Were you surprised, given his horrible nickname of Randy Andy, and can, can the monarchy survive this what do you think where do you what do you see happening with him just low profile forever well I mean it's very difficult to know what they do with Andrew right I mean in in previous centuries they could have sort of banished him to some castle in the borders of Wales or something and then you know they could have uh, just slammed the drawbridge down and he'd never be heard of again but they're not trying to do that well I know but they're trying to do it but it's a bit hard to know how to stash or where to stash a very healthy 61 year old very, very insensitive man, frankly, who doesn't have any desire to be stashed anywhere and he's going to keep thrusting his face into things whenever he possibly can. So I think they've got a real problem with Andrew about what on earth they do with him, actually, because he's not going quietly, Andrew. He's not actually going to go quietly. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You also write in harrowing detail about Ghislaine Maxwell's upbringing. And I actually read out a passage to... I mean, I've been taking the book everywhere with me and treating people to various readings, often just unsolicited. But you have one uh, part where you talk about um, where Ghislaine is taking a family friend into her bedroom when she's 10. And she shows this family friend all of the instruments on her dressing table, which is an old hairbrush and... I don't know, a wooden stick or something, a leather leather strap. And she said, these are what daddy punishes me with, but I get to choose which one he beats me with. And I think, and and there's other various... That came actually from Mary Berry's memoir. She was was a mistress of Maxwell, her father. And it was this kind of little scene memoir that, you know, it was an obscure thing she wrote. And it stunned me when I read that. I just thought that explains everything. Because in a way, you know, her father was asking her to procure her own punishment, you know, for herself. It was something so twisted, actually, that it would... You could imagine how that impacted on her psyche and made her sort of seek out another very sort of essentially emotionally sadistic man is the truth in Jeffrey Epstein. So that was already out there as a memoir. How amazing that no one had discovered that until you. I assume that was an original interview you'd done for the book. No, no, that was shocking. But it was was an obscure memoir. I got it from somebody who, you know, I don't know how many people, how many copies were printed of it. You know, it was a sort of... Mm. uh, But it was, no, it hasn't been picked up somewhere else. I was quite surprised that it hadn't. To me, it leapt from the page. But you're also clear, even though she was vulnerable to someone like... 
Epstein, you're also very clear that that didn't make her a victim, that to an extent no, she no, was driving I mean, the... No, I, I mean, no, Ghislaine, um, Ghislaine really kind of upped the ante for Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, she, her social energy, which was considerable, and her contacts and her charm essentially uh, added to the kind of industrial strength procuring that, that Jeffrey had. Uh, she did that for Jeffrey. That was that was the you know she brought tremendous energy to the operation essentially, and it was a very very odd thing really to, when you think about it. Um, clearly, she was madly in love with Epstein and really kind of lost a sense of who she was, and it just dovetailed with this kind of dark wound of her own past, you know, with her father. It was a, a, a it's it's remarkable to think that you know her father died. We don't know by suicide or murder, you know, uh, going over the side of his boat. And then, you know, 25 years later, same thing with Jeffrey Epstein. We don't know whether Jeffrey Epstein was a suicide or a murder. And her refusal to kind of turn him over at a time when she could have done, she could have flipped on Jeffrey Epstein 10 years before, if she wished, but she didn't. And now, of course, his suicide means that she had no one, nothing to tell because Epstein was dead. So, essentially, she then, you know, there was no recourse for it. She had nothing she could give. Because Epstein lived in such compartments that, you know, everyone has always said, you know, she's sitting on all this information that she'll give to the uh, FBI. But actually, she'd have given information if she really had it. And she has nothing, I think, to give. And she's going to serve out that sentence for, you know, more than 20 years. And you think she was desperate and in love with him rather than terrified of losing the lifestyle? I think it was all, always with, Je- with Jelaine, always, cocktail. you know, a cocktail, yeah, I do. And to bring us to the other contemporary scandal, which is obviously very, very different in flavour, you've had what's happened with the Sussexes, and as you've mentioned, Harry, the trauma of the paparazzi, which is, it's incredibly hard to read, actually, all the ways when you lay out how... Things are snatched from him, whether it's his job in the army, whether it's Chelsea, whether it's the utter devastation of his mother. And when those things build and build and build, what does that do to a person? And you say, you know, he, you say lovely things about him as well, that he was sweet and earnest and that he had great capabilities. And you also note that Meghan had really inadequate support when she married into the royal family. You know, she was assigned an 80-year-old white woman to help her navigate the monarchy as a 30-something American acting black woman. But you also are very clear that you think they have made grave errors. Could you talk a little bit more about that? I think that the Sussexes, the major, the major error, essentially, was, was impatience, actually. Um, I mean, one thing that we've seen, you know, in the story that, that I write is that, you know, that it's all about the long game being in that family. You, it's, it's a, it's a, if you think about Camilla, she... Very long game. Long game. <laughs> if you think about the Queen, I mean, of course, um, and you think about, you know, the Duchess of Cambridge, Waity Katie, it's about the long game. And actually, a lot of good things can come to you if you're strategic. Uh, it's not, an, as I've said, it's a, it's a very, very constrained life. It's not a life I could bear. But there are, you know, there are things you can do in it. And... The Queen's view regarding the Sussexes, she she was always such an admirer of the way Philip came into the family, 
tremendous restive alpha man, felt he didn't have a role, felt that he was flailing around. But over the years, he carved out for himself a very, very meaningful role and did develop a very satisfying, you know, sort of portfolio of interests that ultimately, you know, he found actually a very fulfilling life. And she believed that that's, you know, what the Sussexes could do. But there was a great deal of impatience there, essentially, in um, the two of them. And I think that they sort of reinforced that in each other. I think that Harry, the thing that fascinated me, actually, was one of the, you know, very close person to Harry said, you know, we always thought that Harry would leave. We always thought he would at some point uh, because he was so terribly unhappy. And that the family also thought that Harry really might well leave because he was so unhappy, that he was fragile, that he was emotional, that he was, you know, he, he, he was dreadfully, uh, you know, conflicted about it all. And that they're not, they, weren't, they were not surprised that, that, about that. And they actually thought, one of them said to me, you know, I always thought the, most, the best thing that could happen to Harry would be that he'd marry a wife who said, I'll get you, I'll take you out of this. Well, of course, that's what actually happened with Meghan. She really, uh, I think, gave Harry the tools to sort of escape, essentially, because she had the kind of dynamism and, and, and worldly connections and a, a, a fearlessness, if you like, because, you know, as a career woman, um, you know, in her 30s, she'd earned her own living from the age of 21, and Harry was just absolutely entranced by her, her, her sort of extraordinary, you know, self-determination, actually. Quite unlike uh, a lot of the young women, you know, he, he was used to, who were much more sort of, you know, women of, uh, you know, Megan was, a, was, had been in a TV show, a successful television show. She, came, she was in Hollywood. She knew people. And that, that was for him, I think, a very, you know, exciting prospect. And in a sense, in a way, she opened his eyes to the feeling that there could be this other life that could be of interest to him. Uh, and it also happened to come at a time when he'd started the Invictus Games. And that really showed Harry that he could be a megastar. Because the Invictus Games, his Wounded Warriors uh, you know, initiative, was actually a brilliant idea. It was, it was really the best royal initiative we've really seen. I don't know, I mean, it's one of the most successful ever. Because it's authentic, it is emotional, it's connective. There's something incredibly moving about seeing people you know, who have uh, the wounds of war being kind of validated by, by sports. I mean, it's an amazingly clever, as well as being meaningful, you know, initiative. And it was Harry's idea, it was. And it, it was done so well and has been you know, an ongoing great success. And for Harry, that meant he could be on the world stage, he could be a global superstar, essentially, of his own making, he felt. And, of course, that's very much what Meghan had always wanted. So the two of them, that, that, that kind of reinforced, you know, the, 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 each other. Uh, and suddenly being stuck in this kind of second son, I mean, he's sixth in line to the throne at this point. I mean, it, it seemed pointless to be there anymore. But I think that the precipitous way they did things was a huge mistake for them. And I think a great lack now for the royal family that it all ended in tears because I think that they could have been a great asset. And I think that they would have got a lot of what they wanted if they'd done things differently. But they, they were very reckless and uh, kind of ill-thought-out in the way they you know, made this you know, decision to, as they put it, become sort of quasi-royal, you know, that they were going to have a commercial arm. The fact is, is that they were always told, and it's never been clearer ever, that 
to have a, you know, a, a, to try and be a part-time royal, to try to be both royal and also taking on a huge monetary rewards for, for entertainment projects cannot work because essentially there's, the conflicts of interest are too intense. It, it, the, the press would never let you rest. I mean, everything would always be questioned. And essentially, you know, you would be leveraging your royal uh, titles. You are. That is why, you know, that's why people want you to endorse their products, to do this thing. It's because you're royal. And that means that you're leveraging the monarchy and you cannot be allowed to do that. So it's a kind of, it's, it's this awful box they're in, which is that, you know, they have this kind of mirage, this glittering mirage of all of this fabulous deals that could be made. But at the same time, you know, the goodies are out of, are out of, uh, out of reach. And that, I think, became a driving kind of frustration for the Sussexes, that the, the, glittering, the glittering prizes were out of reach. What's been so extraordinary to witness and must be incredibly discombobulating to experience as the recipient of it is how swiftly the pendulum has gone from one extreme to the other. So you had the high point of their wedding where the kind of general feeling was very, very behind... Megan, and then when she was pregnant, she did get an extraordinarily rough time from the tabloids. I mean, of course, there's also the straight out of Compton headline, and she was given. There were so there were all those um, headlines contrasted of Kate with her hand on her belly, you know, perfectly nice things being written about her, and Megan resting her hand. And I wrote a piece for I can't remember. I think it was Elle magazine, just saying, you know, it's here's the reasons why, as a woman, when you're pregnant, you might find that comforting. And still, three years on, however long it's been, I get tweets from people saying she was never pregnant, she mm. faked it. I mean, the, I have tried to mute so many things. The fury that writing one thing about her aroused. And, I mean, we could sit here all night talking about, did she know what she was getting into? Didn't she? You know, but, I mean, I can think of, I can think of more people who would be broken by what she had gone through, especially while having children, than who wouldn't. And I can see that her saying to Tom Bradby, no-one's asked me if I'm okay during a tour, the timing is, the timing is bad, but it did feel like just the level of ire um, towards her feels, it feels imbalanced. Well, I mean, you know, the fact is that it's constantly stoked by the same, uh, you know, that the, the press loves nothing more than kind of, for a start, like war between women. Well, I mean, like the also, Kate versus I mean, Piers Morgan Megan leaving thing. his job over her. I remember watching on television as he, you know, stormed out of a studio and essentially resigned from his job over Meghan Markle. I think, Meghan well, Markle. I think that, you know, there was a sense of, there was so much hope around the Sussexes' wedding that when it became clear that Meghan was hating it, there was a sense of fury um, that kind of took over about the sort of her rejection almost it seems of it was a mutual rejection that developed a very bad energy around her essentially and a kind of sense that she'd also kind of stolen Diana's beloved boy you know I mean, I mean Harry was was beloved I mean actually he was the most second most popular member of the royal family you know for years and he's gone, and that's left this kind of gaping wound, essentially, in, I think, you know, in, in the royal uh, sort of story. And I, I think that ultimately there is going to be a desire to have Harry back, and I think there's a desire, probably there may be well be a desire for Harry to come back. Whether it's possible to sort of mend this, this bitter relationship that, with the British nation at this point 
is a question because I don't think that I think Megan actually hated the whole situation. I think that Megan, she 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 hated the sort of the British temperament, is in truth. You know, the sort of, you know, the the, the dry sense of humour, the the, the uh, reserve, you know, the the kind of uh, snarky way of looking at the world. I mean. It really wasn't that Megan was American so much as Mer- she was so Californian, you know? I mean, she comes from the sort of capital of smiley face, you know? And, and, and the British kind of sourness at times, just, she just, she, for her it was just, the, you know, she just didn't like it, didn't get it. And I don't think she has any desire to live here again. And uh, having to be apolitical as well. I mean, that would be really, really be difficult yeah. for many well, young Megan, women and being criticised for, I mean, she was... It, but Megan's very political. You know, she's very, very interested in politics. She's extremely interested in politics. There are constant rumours that Megan, will, you know, will run for office. I actually think that is something that would interest her very much. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. But when she lobbied um, Republican senators last year about paid parental leave, and she was criticised for that, and there is something quite frustrating about that because you know that's not the worst way she can use her time, but she's just not allowed to do it, and that's when. Well, she had, have, in my view, they have the worst of all worlds, in fact, now, really. Because, I mean, the thing is that the great thing about being royal is that you, uh, you can be as boring as you like forever, right? I mean, you don't have to really do anything to be um, celebrated. Because and bridges. it's a long game, exactly. I mean, it's, it's you know, you're there. Uh, you're always going to be top of the bill. You're always going to be the person who's honoured at, at the big event because you're royal. Now what they've done is they've, they've, they, the glittering prizes are turned out to have quite a lot of downside. I mean, they've, they've, they've got a ton of money from Netflix, but then you've got to deliver something. The thing about these entertainment deals is it's, uh, you know, you can make a huge deal. Over 100 million, million dollars. Yeah, but I mean, are they going to have another deal like that? Is that going to get renewed? And they're living uh, in, a, in a community in Montecito where that's peanuts, right? I mean, all their neighbours are in the billion Mm. many billion dollar uh, you know sort of niche and they're having to work for theirs <laughs> they've got to deliver the projects and we've just seen that um, Megan's Netflix uh, animated show was cancelled oh yeah I saw that I mean cancelled think about that uh, that's and, and the quote was actually it was like kind of like chalk fingers on a chalkboard there was a quote from someone there saying Megan was an actress it's not the first time she's heard no Wow, that's pretty different from being uh, HRH, the Duchess of Sussex, you know, that you're actually back to being, uh, you know, a person who, who can just have no from an entertainment company. But that is the truth. If you are going to put yourself into that realm and you're going to make deals and have entertainment things, you've got to deliver a hit. It's actually quite hard to deliver hits. I mean, very hard. There are plenty of massive movie stars, you know, who make belly flop projects. If anybody knew how to avoid that, they'd be extremely well off, you know, but, you know, they, they make them all the time. They make flops all the time. So should, they're going to have to keep delivering hits to maintain uh, their sort of leverage. Otherwise, they're going to be people in the entertainment world who have hits, who have flops. They're just like everybody else. So I think they've actually, I think that that alone might mean that at a certain point they decide to come back to England because it might suddenly seem rather appealing to not have to keep on singing for your supper. You write that to serve the monarchy is to serve the queen and to be a celebrity is to serve yourself and, and that that was obviously a big issue when we're talking about the Sussexes. But that feels like a very old approach that has not made for many happy campers at all. Is there a way in which you can be a working royal and serve the monarchy and also not 
eviscerate or erase yourself in the process? Well, I mean, yes, I think, I think it's not easy, but um, I, think, I think that there is, if you're prepared to, to take that, 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 that more sort of that, that less excitable view of wanting to sort of celebrity. And that is the big difference, I think. Uh, I think the big surprise to the, to, to the family is that Harry, who always said he wanted to be private, who hated the scrutiny, has somehow, since he's left, never stopped talking and, 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 and sought out, you know, time and time again, you know, major celebrity talk shows on which to sort of unburden himself and thereby, you know, generate boomerang sound bites constantly. It's a very mystifying thing that he seems to almost compulsively now want to keep talking. He's now doing... Like a compulsive uh, catharsis. He's now, yeah, he's, he's now doing a memoir that, um, that is, you know, got everybody in a state of total, you know, uh, trepidation. And it's said to have, you know, harsh things in it about his family again. So that, you kind of wonder what is his end game in, for doing that, essentially, or whether it's just that he's just work, constantly working through this, you know, this kind of um, psychic, you know, storm that's, that's been raging in him all this time. But um, I, don't, I don't think that uh, that's a smart, long game, personally. Mm. Before we go to questions, I just had one thing I wanted to ask you. Your acknowledgements are extensive, and you note that writing about the royal family is incredibly difficult for obvious reasons, and many people don't want to be on record. And I just want to know, would we be surprised by some of your sources? <laughs> Not telling. Um, well, I mean, I, was, I mean yes. it takes time to, get the, to win the trust of, of, of people, but I think that when... When people sort of decide that, you know, you're actually trying to get, you're really striving to get this right, you know, then they, they start to be willing to uh, help. Thank you, Tina. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in giving a huge thank you to Tina and Pandora. This episode of the How To Academy podcast starred Tina Brown and was presented by Pandora Sykes. The producer was Esme Bright and the series is made by me and Dana Outcult. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Please write us a review and share the episode if you loved it. We're back on the 7th of June. Until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>